Ladies and gentlemen, good evening and welcome. For those of you who have only joined the Middle East Center community since the age of the Invescoat building, you won't have known that this was actually where we used to hold all of our seminars, Tuesdays and Fridays alike. And there's something very nostalgic about getting a crowd in here and the loud buzz of the room when we fill this room up that makes it feel very much like a home the way home used to be before we had our beautiful new building and its big lecture theater. And in that sense, it's wonderful to be able to welcome Professor Adam Mestian to be our speaker tonight because Adam came to spend a year here in Oxford teaching modern history of the Middle East while I had a year of leave and was very much in that period of transition as the new building foundations were being laid and while the activities of the Middle East Center still took place very much in this space. And so it's a double welcome home, Adam, not just to Oxford and the Middle East Center, but to the room in which you would have seen and participated in the intellectual outreach of the center at that time. Adam is, of course, Associate Professor of Middle Eastern History at Duke. He went to Duke after a brilliant post-Oxford career at the Society of Fellows at Harvard. He has not been sitting on his laurels in the time since he was in Oxford. He has been turning out one remarkably great book after another, beginning with, actually, your first was your Ifo book, wasn't it? Uh, there, there is one. Uh, it's an Ifao book. Ifao book. Yeah. But I think Arab patriotism might be the first? Yes, yes. Uh, the Ideology and Culture of Power in Late Ottoman Egypt, with Ifao, Primordial History, Print Capitalism, and Egyptology in 19th Century Cairo in 2021. And then today, we get a chance to hear from Adam about his latest book. I would hold the book up for you, but as an even bigger copy of the cover on the overhead projection, Modern Arab Kingship, Remaking the Ottoman Political Order, in the interwar Middle East. Adam, it is such a joy to welcome you back to your old home in the Middle East Center and to hear you talk about this exciting project which resonates so strongly with the scholarship that has been coming out of the Middle East Center since al-Turani's day. So without further ado, the floor is yours. Thank you so much for this wonderful, I, I think I just stand up, right? Yeah. Perhaps. For this wonderful introduction, and, and thank you so much for this opportunity to, to advertise my book. And thank you, all of you, so much for coming today. I know it's, uh, it's Tuesday and it's evening, so I really appreciate that, that you came uh, um, to, to listen to this, this little talk. And indeed, I have fond memories of this center, of this very room uh, as well, and uh, partly my education happened here. So thank you so much as a postdoc, as, a, as an Eastern European... Uh, <laughs> retired punk musician arriving to, uh, to Oxford and then and after uh, Oxford going to becoming an elite cosmopolitan terrible uh, uh, academic um, so um, yeah yeah so thank you so much for this education and the opportunities and indeed I enjoy it so uh, indeed as as Eugene just um, told us I have been uh, known as the as, 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 an, as a historian of late Ottoman Egypt a social and cultural historian, and uh, um, most recently I am, uh, I'm, I have not most recently, in the last seven years I had a parallel project on, on the Muslim fiscal bureaucracy in, in, in Egypt, and this is why I'm currently working uh, in, in, in Cairo and deeply buried in the archives, but 
Today we will discuss this book, indeed, The Modern Arab Kingship, which is a little bit of a different genre. So those of you who came today for cultural history will be disappointed. I'm so sorry, so please leave. Because this book is more of a historical sociology, theoretical intervention into certain debates, although it does contain some, some micro-histories and it does have a historical, anthropological engagement with, with politics, but it's heavily in political theory, social history of politics, constitutional history, and so on and so forth. This book is not about uh, the 19th century, although I started in the 19th century. It's, it's a heavy 1920s book, so this, this, this is what have, you have to know. So today, so Eugene asked me to talk about 40 minutes, and I, I will do so. I'm so sorry. Uh, first, I will uh, describe the main argument. I try to be very uh, concise because it's a little bit of an abstract. Uh, some of the theoretical contributions, and then I will talk about, uh, uh, just because of Eugene Rogan, uh, the, the example of making 1920s Syria in, in, in this theoretical framework that I offer. Of course, everything that I will talk about today is just a humble footnote to the work of, of Eugene Rogan. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm, I'm really pleased that I can provide this Footnote. It was a humble footnote to the work of Albert Hurani, of well, course. <laughs> no, well, but I, 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 yeah, I, I think it's a little bit more than a humble footnote. But anyway, mine is just a humble footnote. Okay. <laughs> so so I, I start with the main argument first. So those of you who do not know the Middle East, you happen to be not know the Middle East, uh, this is the region and this is the time period that my book focuses on. We can see the late Ottoman Empire in 1914. The map is a little bit uh, uh, is a little bit lying because actually um, Libya is uh, is part of the Ottoman Empire at this time still uh, 1914, just before the First World War. And the in the other map you can see uh, the early 1920s arrangement. This is what is usually known uh, in in historiography as the unprecedented extension of European. Uh, power in, in the Middle East after the dissolution of the Ottoman Empire. So in one you can see the Ottoman uh, territories, Egypt is also part of it, although it's under British occupation at this time until 1914, and you can see the, in the other uh, uh, map the new newly formed uh, well, territorial arrangements. One policy that is usually forgotten, and I will talk a little bit about it, is the Kingdom of the Hejaz, which is uh, today I mean, part of Saudi Arabia, with the uh, capital of Mecca. Uh, it's a very interesting little polity uh, at the time, and I will, I will discuss uh, a little bit more of that. So this is the, the region, and this is the time period the book is most about, 1910s, 1920s. Um, the problem that the book deals with is this great transformation. What happens after an empire is gone? Uh, um, uh, this question came to my, um, to my engagement with late Ottoman Egypt, which was a subordinate Muslim princely polity, if you want, uh, under Ottoman and then under British and Ottoman uh, rule. And I was wondering that usually we, we have this vocabulary from, usually from political science, that we talk either about nation states or we talk about colonies. 
but there are all other kinds of polities in modern history, in all other kinds of statuses. And I was dissatisfied by the theoretical framework that was presently offered to describe these, uh, these strange, sometimes strange governments, sometimes existing in various subordinations, sometimes in autonomy, sometimes not, and so on and so forth. Um, the other uh, uh, question or problem came to me uh, from, from two types of narratives. So one is the narrative of this European expansion, the European uh, control over the post-Ottoman territories at this time, which is well known in this college, the Britain's moment in the Middle East in, in Britain, right? In France, it is actually the, the French mandate is, is less, the French uh, rule is, is understudied a little bit, uh, but it's still there, so how the Allied powers after the First World War try to perpetuate their, their rule in these territories, and of course, Zionist colonization of Palestine was part of, of this, of this uh, project, and we can talk a little bit more of that. So there is this narrative, and there is another narrative, which is the Arab nationalist narrative. Either each Arab post-Ottoman Arab national government has their own stories of origin, or we have the big pan-Arab nationalist narrative that Professor Rogan knows uh, a lot about. But I was wondering that uh, what if we start with the Ottoman context? What if we look at this period, the 1920s, not through the European lenses, not through the Arab nationalist lenses, but from, from this very strange empire, the late Ottoman Empire? What, what, what can we gain from, this, from, this, from these lenses? And this is, I try to sum up the main argument of the book in, in this uh, concept. So the argument is that there is a operation in the 1920s which we can call a recycling empire, I call it recycling empire, a recasting of previous imperial institutions in politics, in economy, in, 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 in culture, in, in religion, uh, and, and that giant operation defines uh, uh, the period in the post-Ottoman territories as well, and in the post-Habsburg territories, of course, as well in Eastern Europe, and I would even argue uh, in China as well, uh, in the 1920s, 1930s. So unfortunately, I'm, I'm, I'm very immodest, and I, I, this argument is a, is a large uh, theoretical argument proposing this, uh, this approach to the 1920s, in general after the First World War as a, as a general paradigm of, uh, of for, the, for the history of defeated people who, who, who are denied of their, their empires. And I suggest in terms of politics that this operation produces not necessarily nation states, but what I call sovereign local states and new imperial projects. And I will talk a little bit more about what I mean on, on local state exactly. Uh, what I'm, uh, an important uh, issue in the book as well that I actually I spend a lot of time is that sovereignty in my formulation is not uh, contradictory to, uh, to being subordinated. So I'm talking about subordinated sovereign local states, subordinated sovereign government. And, uh, if you are interested, we can, we can discuss that, that as well. This is the table of contents of the book. I will not go through each chapter, but as you can see, the first three chapters are, are theoretical chapters, very heavily theoretical, and then I go into 
into various moments, moments I quote, constituent events in, in, in each chapter, and I reach roughly the, the Second World War. Uh, obviously, the book does not want to give the last word on, on any of these uh, problems, on any of these storylines, but I try to open uh, certain questions and I try to suggest certain vocabularies to describe, uh, to describe this very complex moment. So the book itself is, provides or suggests or offers a framework for interpretation for state making in new imperial history. Who knows new imperial history here? Have you heard about this term recently? No, new imperial history? Jane Burbank, Fred Cooper, a little bit, some? Anyway, so I'm very much belonging to that uh, current. I, I was very inspired by uh, people who, who were often called, labeled as new imperial historians, although I'm also skeptical uh, about a lot, so I, 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 I put that question mark there. Um, the book offers, secondly, micro-histories of these, what I call, constituent events, so relatively short moments when groups which are claiming certain forms or certain uh, forms of constituent power would impose their own vision to these successor societies, usually in the form of a written constitution. And I go very deep in sometimes it, it use micro-history tools. And it is partly a study also of legal authority in changing Muslim regimes, so I used uh, a, a lot of Sharia court records, for instance. Indeed, a book which is about uh, creating new political regimes and new political orders is, is a very boring book in the sense that it deals with, it's very heavily male-inflected, right? There are monarchs and all these post uh, Ottoman military men and the European, British and French imperialists, also Italian, of course, imperialists in the background. Uh, later, of course, Mussolini is very keen, for instance, to acquire Syria and so on and so forth. So I turned to the Sharia court records of Damascus to bring in some female voices uh, from the late 1910s, early 1920s. Uh, uh, and the Sharia court records, of course, are, are very good for that because by this time, 60-70% uh, of the litigants are female uh, in the Sharia courts. Uh, and so I, I was very interested how they frame, for instance, in the moment of the fall of the Ottoman Empire, their, to whom they belong now, who, whose citizens they are, whose legal authority they, they apply for, and so on and so forth. So one chapter is based on Sharia court records. And I was also lucky uh, in the source basis because the Ponso papers, only Ponso was the, one of the high commissioners of uh, the French mandate in, in Syria and Lebanon, and the Ponso <coughs> papers just became available for research while I was doing this, this uh, project, and uh, the La Courneuve archivists in Paris were kind enough to, uh, even without cataloging the papers and officially being available, they allowed me to, to use them. And I was also lucky to be in Riyadh and deal with the, the Al-Qassab collection. Al-Qassab was a sheikh, the Syrian sheikh, and I will talk a little bit more about him uh, in the so-called uh, Darat Malik Abdelaziz, which is a very <laughs> contested archival space, but, but uh, I was lucky to get some access, some access to, to these papers, so that was very useful. And I also used, of course, all other archival uh, usual suspects. 
I will not go into, into very abstract details, but the major terms of the book, yes, recycling empire, which is based also on an approach to historical change that I talk a lot about uh, in, in, in chapter two, and I will not go into detail, but essentially I think, we usually think about historical change as somehow related to revolution, but unfortunately this is not the case often. So often, actually, what we see is non-revolution or even explicitly counter-revolutionary change, especially in the 1920s. Many of these constituent moments are not coming out of a revolutionary movement, but from some sort of other constellation. I think a major concept that I offer to perhaps international relations and political theory is governing without sovereignty. I, I do think that, uh, especially in Middle East studies, but also in other fields, the engagement with sovereignty is, um, is, um, is a bit misleading. I think for the 20th century history of the Middle East especially, we have to engage with how non-sovereign non forms of power uh, are, are there, especially administrative forms. Um, and I do think that governing without sovereignty is a major problem since the 1910s for strong states, until today. Why? Because um, territorial acquisition by force is no more allowed in international law. So strong states, which do occupy other territories, cannot exercise sovereign powers, uh, attributes of sovereignty, what usually in legal terms described. Mm -hmm. So they have to govern without sovereignty, and this is the case in, I don't know, today's in the Ukrainian occupied territories, of course in the Palestinian occupied territories, and perhaps in Gaza, uh, it will be again the case that um, a, a strong state through military occupation have to find out how to govern the territory without sovereignty. So I, the, in the 1920s, of course, the League of Nations mandate category, the Class A mandate category for, uh, for Syria and Lebanon and for Palestine and Iraq are, are also experiments with forms of governing without sovereignty. Uh, and of course, military occupation is the, is the par excellence uh, uh, form of governing without sovereignty. This was the case, for instance, at the time in, in, in Britain. That the British Empire was oh, a military occupier after 1922. Um, I suspend the concept of the nation state. I don't use it. I don't like it. I don't think it's useful. I don't, I don't think it's useful at all. And instead, I talk about sovereign local states, as I said, uh, states which use in, in their political order all kinds of post imperial particles. Um, and I say particles because some of the theoretical um, basis of my book is actually from art history. Uh, do you know the concept of spoliation? Have you ever heard about spoliation? Spoliation is this operation when, for instance, there is an old building and the part of it is inbuilt into a new building. It can be a material form, literally a, a window is built into a new building, or it can be in style as well, that the old style is continuous in a new context. I think this happens actually in terms of politics very much, a spoliation process in the 1920s. So all the imperial institutions, modern monarchy, religion, including practices, religious law, the Sharia courts, which are all belonging to the Ottoman world at this time, built into the new 
framework of, of local governments, uh, including in their constitutional and political order. So I call, I, I think the term local is much more useful than national because it also indicates that they are still in a subordinated position. So they are still, uh, uh, of course, in this period, through the mandate, um, they are subordinated to France or the League of Nations, if you want. There are two new, uh, the League of Nations also is a new imperial power in a way. Uh, internationalism as a new, uh, substituting certain functions of the previous imperial sovereign uh, can be thought of until today, perhaps. Uh, so so, so I, I use this concept to, to, to study nationalism as well. Nationalism is very important, but I talk rather about national projects than, than, than the nation state. I talk uh, about successful societies, and I also talk about successful diasporas. This is the moment when, uh, of course, the disappearance of empire does not leave behind only the peoples in their own regions, but also leaves behind large groups outside of the previous empire. So there are successful diasporas in this sense, in the Americas, in, in Europe, and even in the region. Right? There is a Eastern Mediterranean uh, regional diaspora as well, and they are politically very active. This is the moment also when actually uh, the political importance of diasporas to, to, to feed back somehow and to form the new politics in their imagined homelands uh, are, are uh, 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 starting, actually. And uh, I, I think what characterizes the, the period in terms of uh, constitutionalism is not necessarily the national one, but some form of imperial constitutionalism still from below and from above, actors are advocating uh, not necessarily for democratic representation, but for all kinds of, uh, all kinds of other, uh, uh, integrating for all, all other kinds of sources of authority, religion, monarchy, dynasty, and of course, ethno-national principles. And importantly, they imagined some of these polities as federations. I think the federative <coughs> idea is, is very important at this time. And, uh, some of my theoretical background coming actually from, um, from, from, from India, from the India context, Indian context as well, uh, South Asia, and, and, uh, and, uh, and also, of course, uh, the Americas, where there are all kinds of alternative imaginations to the, to the nation state. I will not describe some of uh, my theoretical uh, concepts, but I belong to perhaps what we can describe transitology, so actually, I also uh, take some concepts from post-Soviet sociologists. Mm -hmm. And I do think it's this, I mean, the, not the same, of course, but the, the, the dissolution of a large political unit is, is the same in the 1920s in the post-Ottoman territories as it is in the post-Soviet, mm -hmm. and in post-colonial Africa, for instance, and so on and so forth. And um, as I said, my major inspiration is, is new imperial history. Um, but I, I'm also a bit skeptical about, about everything that, that they do. The book is in, uh, in a dialogue with a number of books recently published, and as I learned during my, my, my writing, there will be forthcoming a couple of other books. Now there is this new domain, the post-Ottoman studies domain. So there was the Ottoman studies that, that we know very well, and now we have uh, a temporal, temporally defined historical field, the post-Ottoman studies. Uh, some of the, the titles are, are um, 
I listed here and I will not go into this, but I hope my little book is a little contribution to this uh, large wave and um, who knows uh, what will happen. The relevance of the book for today is, um, is, is really tackling this, this uh, problematizing this moment of the dissolution of large political systems, also bringing uh, uh, forth the, the post-Soviet and post-colonial uh, African examples. I point out to the modular logic of state-making, especially the federative composites, associative, tentacular, religious, and other projects instead of the nation-state, the norm of the nation-state. And so today when we, human society is reorganized again, we are constantly reorganized, we, we, we can again think about federations and blocks, and actually we can see blocks emerging again in, in, uh, in, um, in Europe and, and elsewhere. All right, that was the theory part. Are you still alive? Um, if you're still alive, then I would, I would continue, Jimea, uh, and in about 15 minutes, I would describe the making of Syria, based on this, based on this little exercise. So how, how does the making of the state of Syria look like if we approach through these theoretical lenses? Uh, the state of Syria in the in, is, is created in 1925 uh, as an administrative project, first of all, and it becomes in 1930, a republic with a Muslim president. If you want, actually the state of Syria is the first uh, Muslim republic. Uh, I call it a sovereign local state, and in, during the story we can also uh, consider the importance of diaspora. Why do I tell you the story of Syria, which is a republic, for advertising a book which is called Modern Arab Kingship? It is because through my uh, tools, if you want, we can see that the making of this state, this new government, was not as smooth as we learn either from the nationalist narrative or from the critical uh, European colonial narratives. We will see that uh, actually there are uh, uh, um, uh, a number of monarchical projects about making Syria into, not, not to a Muslim republic, but into a Muslim monarchy. If we start the making of Syria, we shouldn't start some imagined Arab nationalist movement, but we should start from this moment in the 1910s when there are a number of discussions about how to transform the Ottoman Empire. So instead of looking at uh, the nationalist ideas of certain actors, which are certainly there, we should also look at how some of these groups advocate for rather transforming into a perhaps uh, Ottoman federation instead of a, of, a, of a centralized project. This, at the time, it was called the decentralization project, both discussed in Istanbul and in many Arab provinces. Finally, the Ottoman central government's answer to this advocacy was a law, the General Administrative Temporary Law of Provinces, the Idare Umumiya Vilayet Kanun Muakketib, which was, uh, uh, which was promising local elections, uh, especially in the Arab provinces, uh, based on certain forms of representation, male voters, and so on and so forth. It never became implemented because of the First World War, but after the war it became very important for the French authorities. This, this was the law based on which they organized the first elections, and so on and so forth. 
There are some luminaries in this moment, like the more or less famous Rashid Rida, a Muslim activist, uh, print entrepreneur in uh, Cairo, who is a Syrian sheikh. And it, in 1915, he offers a, a, a project to the British authorities about a new Arab empire, which was supposed to be a caliphate republic, actually. Uh, the uh, caliph in Mecca, perhaps the emir of Mecca, and the president in Damascus, in some sort of federation among Muslim emirs. This is an anti-Ottoman new imperial project mm -hmm. and vision, which was never accepted, of course, by the British. And he himself changed his mind after the war, especially after 1922. He's he becomes a very much of a monarchist. But at this time, he this is one of uh, one, one interesting project among the many other projects. And indeed, we have the Arab nationalist story that we know about Sharif Hussein and the uh, <coughs> making of the, the announcement of the Arab Kingdom. Uh, and here you must know very well the, the story of uh, Lawrence of Arabia and Blue Eyes in the desert and so on and so forth. But in this perspective, actually, the Arab Kingdom is bringing together the Sharifian project, which is a, a religious uh, project in a sense. The Sharifs are descendants of the Prophet Muhammad. And uh, they claim leadership based on their uh, religious capital, if you want. Although Sharif al-Hussein, the Emir of Mecca, is presented as an uh, Arab nationalist, of course we know that he was an integrated member of the Ottoman elite. He was born in Istanbul. One of his wives was Turkish. Uh, he was commuting for uh, 30 years between Mecca and Istanbul, and so on and so forth. There is an, an argument also has been already made about him. And what we can see is that what, he, what they really propose is not to recycle the Young Turk government, but rather the previous Abdul Hamidian mm -hmm. uh, principles at this time, at least in my interpretation. The Allied powers, of course, do not uh, acknowledge this claim, and they only acknowledge him as the king of the Hijaz of this new polity. What comes from the federalist ideas and this Sharifian, what I call genealogical monarchy, is this very well-known moment in Damascus, 1919, when a Syrian assembly proposes to a visiting commission the making of a Syrian federation, which is a monarchical federation with one of the sons of Sharif Hussein Faisal as the king. Uh, in some interpretations, this is a Somehow, the United States of Syria is an imitation of the US uh, uh, system, but based on the Ottoman matrix, we know very well that it is a, a local imagination also about, uh, in a way, continuing the, the, the Ottoman uh, federative project. And only for Eugene Rogan, uh, I have this little clip. This is a previously unknown French army movie, it's still the property of the French army, about 1919 May, when uh, Sheriff Faisal is coming back from the Paris Peace Conference, and um, uh, it's a unique movie, uh, and uh, arrives in Damascus, uh, first in Beirut and then in Damascus, <coughs> and um, uh, we can see some of the elements, some of the moments of this uh, uh, meeting of 
the Ottoman bourgeoisie in uh, in Damascus uh, with uh, with the Sharifian idea. Uh, this is the the people waiting for uh, for Faisal. In a moment, I will uh, you will arrive. Uh, of course, they are preparing for sacrifice uh, to give uh, great gratefulness. Yeah? Mm -hmm. And um, here he is. And in his entourage, of course, you can see the later famous figures in the 20th century, like Nouria Said, the later prime <coughs> minister of Iraq, yeah. um, Askari, and other famous Arab figures. Uh, Emir Faisal is not yet a king. He's not voted as a king, but he's treated as a king. This is also a fascinating moment when you can see the mixture of this post-war moment when perhaps legally speaking Damascus is still an Ottoman city, but it's kind of clear that it's going somewhere else. And of course Faisal as a would-be king, the first thing he does is greets the representatives of the religious uh, sects, minorities, uh, you can see the Mufti of Damascus there as well, and uh, the French soldiers, British soldiers. It's a fascinating 17-minute silent movie, and um, uh, we have a little project on that, and hopefully if the French army allows us, then we will also publish the results with the, with the number of people. Anyway, I, I can, it's a great movie. Anyway, um, okay. The project, of course, of the United States of Syria never comes through because the French uh, or government decides to invade Damascus. They famously kill the leader of the post-Ottoman Arab army, uh, Yusuf al-Azma, and uh, this is the map that we usually know. Right? This is the, the mandate system in the Middle East, uh, sanctified by the Treaty of Lausanne. But if we go with the federative and post-imperial idea, what we see emerging below this, this large, uh, uh, large control, what we see are actually federative projects. One is the Federation, Federation des États Syriens, Federation of the Syrian States, which is actually established an actually existing polity. It's a fascinating uh, uh, story. There is, a, there is actually a federative government. It's usually framed that the it was a French army project to divide Syria. But if we really start from the late Ottoman federalist ideas, we can, and it's very clear also in the documents, that it is demanded by the Syrians themselves. This is a continuation or a, a kind of the French answer to the previous Ottoman uh, Arab projects. The other uh, federate federation is the Sharifian Federation, which we can uh, see as an amobatic uh, polity, the kingdom of the Hijaz here, then the beginning of, uh, um, of the Transjordanian Emirate, and the transferred uh, Emir Faisal to Baghdad, yet without Mosul. This is how in the early 1920s the new Sharifian project looked like. Uh, of course, painfully without Palestine. Um, but these two federative projects actually define the moment. And then we know that, of course, Sharif Hussein even became, a, a, assumed the caliphate in 1924 before his fall. But for the story of the Syrian state, this group of uh, exiled 
activists are the most important. This is the success of diaspora outside of the French mandate. They are all mostly Damascene, Aleppo, notables. Sheikh Al-Qassab, one of my main heroes, is sitting in the middle. They are called the Istiklali group, the independentist, Hezbollah Istiklal as well. They are mostly a random group of people. Not, not everybody is sticking together. They are post-Ottoman bourgeois elites. They are, they are Muslim activists. And uh, they are, but their main goal is to somehow get back uh, Damascus from the French. And they are commuting between Amman, Mecca, Jerusalem, Haifa, and trying to organize themselves, trying to gain money. Because in 1925, the French create this new state, the state of Syria, by joining the Aleppo and the Damascus government. And the big question is, what will happen with the constitution of this state? What kind of state this administrative polity will be? And there is a struggle over interpretation. The French think that the constitution is actually an administrative thing. It is an old imperial instrument, the so-called statut organique, which can be just declared by the French power and perhaps the local populations agree. The Syrians, many Syrians will think otherwise. They think it's actually a national concept. It, it expresses their self-determination, their will, and so on and so forth. The struggle over this constitution defines the late 1920s. The secularists uh, really want to imitate Ataturk in, um, in uh, Turkey. Why? Not the, all the other groups are advocating actually for some type of monarchy. Uh, in Syria, my favorite uh, project is Ahmed Nami's. He was a Circassian, uh, Ottoman notable with significant land holdings around Aleppo. And in 1926, he was the clear favorite of the French for, to become the king of, uh, of Syria. And actually, he was the clear favorite of some Syrian elites as well to become the king of Syria. Uh, we have the the, the, their, their petitions actually. There was a pact, a secret pact actually made between Ahmed Nami and uh, the Juvenile that they, they, they will declare him. Uh, it would have been a kind of Ottoman Franco monarchy, perhaps in a loose association with Lebanon. My favorite project is, of course, the Istiklali project, which is, uh, which is making Syria a Saudi monarchy using another Faisal, the second son of uh, the new Saudi king, uh, Abdelaziz who later in the 1960s became King Faisal uh, uh, of Saudi Arabia, but at this time he's a young man. And Al-Qassab and many other Muslim activists uh, think that uh, this emir would be the proper king for the new kingdom of Syria. In the book, I describe these projects in quite a detail. They are exiled from Damascus, so they only, they only have means of press propaganda and letters and so on and so forth, but they are very, very forceful. Uh, and um, they, what happens is that uh, finally the secularist Republicans have to concede, and there, there is a secret meeting actually among them, and uh, out of this came, out of this secret meeting comes out this solution that uh, this is their network, even uh, Charles Crane, uh, actually the Crane Commissioner, uh, an American millionaire, gave them money. Uh, uh, so, and of course, I mean, Al Husseini, the Mufti of Jerusalem, was, was part of them. Uh, 
And um, yeah, so out of this negotiation from the Istiklali Saudi monarchists and the Secularist Republicans comes out this idea that, okay, let's make a republic, but it must be uh, with a Muslim president. And that uh, negotiation, of course, under close French surveillance, and I will finish in a moment, is actually uh, uh, not only a, um, it's not only a symbolic act that the president can be Muslim. It means that all the previous uh, Sharia institutions of the Ottoman Empire survive and must survive. So the Sharia courts continue, personal law continues, the uh, religious foundations, the pious foundations continue. So in the economic life and in, pers in the individual life, all these previously Ottoman uh, Sharia-related institutions must continue in this new polity, uh, as opposed to Turkey, for instance. Uh, and indeed, for to just to finish the international legal part of it, the constitution of the French state becomes part of an international law, mm -hmm. with all the other statelets in the mandate. So actually, the the constitution, the Syria, the state of Syria is part in this way of international system. Uh, until today, these are these are. I mean, of course, uh, many of these are overwritten by recent events, but these provide precedents for how uh, state-making can happen in international law. Mm -hmm. And these were deposited at the League of Nations in Arabic and in, in French and in English uh, and became part of the international order. So I conclude. This is what I mean on recycling empire. Uh, we can see the the various uh, routes out of empire, not necessarily through making of, not necessarily through following the nationalist ideology or nationalist movements, or not even pan-Islamism, but how groups actually are super interested and are striving for, for, for government uh, f to impose their own visions on successful societies, but participate, even from abroad, even excluded, in, in new state formation. Um, uh, and indeed preserving some previously uh, Muslim imperial uh, particles in the, new, in, the new, in the new polities. I do think that it is useful to think about monarchy and religion at large in modern state formation in the 20th century in other parts of the world. As I said, I'm, I'm, I'm terrible, so I, I do think that my theory is also useful for Eastern Europe and uh, post Habsburg territories and perhaps also Asia and Africa. Europeans really hate this idea to suspending the nation state as a useful concept, but I suggest that. I think it's healthy. Uh, um, I think federations and blocks is an old new way to think about statehood, perhaps, in the next stage of globalization, so today. And I do hope that uh, they, these ideas may provide some, 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 some routes, uh, new routes for the Middle East in, in the future. Thank you very much for your Hi, attention. You. Adam, thank you so much. It was actually wonderful to get a tour through the book, what the driving concepts that address the issue of the post-Ottoman world as you would like us to rethink this. And you're doing so against um, a tableau that has seen a lot of new scholarship. There was a time when Kemal Karpat and Abu Hurani we're talking about the Ottoman influences in the mm. modern Middle East. 
And then I think the subject was like, drop. And there seems to be a reversion, and it's a way of trying to uh, maybe ex-center Europe and mm. its role mm. in the shaping of Correct. the post-Ottoman world, and maybe looking at either the traces of Ottoman influences or else influences that came from within the region itself that um, might give us a new way to reckon with the way in which sovereign entities emerge, not to fall into the Vesperian model that I learned will not find favor with your talk tonight. You know, I propose these things, and I'm, I'm, I know that it's not everybody accepts my, my ideas. There are a couple of books that have been addressing elements of your subject that I'd like to bring to the conversation. And one is Aziz and Asmi. Oh, yeah. Because Aziz had a way of trying to abstract the meaning of kingship, going right back to earliest Islamic history, but with an eye towards its relevance toward modern times as well. And I just wonder whether you engage at all with Aziz in your framework. Of course, Aziz is very important for several reasons for the book. Um, um, so Aziz, yes, he has, um, has a fantastic book on, on early Islam, is Muslim kingship, but that is a, I would say either it's about Muslim emperorship, if I may say so. It's, uh, it's uh, about the universal Muslim empire that he, uh, that, that he describes, and it's a historical anthropology of, of those ideas in the, between the 7th and the 9th or 10th century. Um, so this is one track of Aziz, and I think in the 1920s we have we don't have that kind of uh, ontological or uh, we do have some symbols and people do think about monarchical form, but I don't. These are not uh, these are real political uh, uh, choices, and it's very clear. Uh, for instance, when Rashid Rida argues for a Saudi king in Damascus, he says that. Uh, it's not because of Islam. It's it, it's it's to manage the diversity of this of the country. He thinks uh, a Muslim king is much better than a president. Mm -hmm. First, uh, second, because he can as a as a Bedouin, he can also uh, a good uh, be good against uh, ruling the nomads of the Syrian desert, mm -hmm. so he can create security, and. Um, and um, and third, um, the uh, uh, if if it is, if it happens that uh, the constituent assembly would not vote for this project, then a president is better. Hmm. So so either the, either a Saudi king <coughs> or or then then a president. He, that is, that's, uh, definitely doesn't want a new sheriffian king. Which I mean, of course, the the Ashraf are very much. Uh, 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 they also have their own uh, advocates. And actually, there are like three. I don't know, I think eight uh, monarchical projects in the late 1920s, also continuing through the 1930s through Syria. Okay, so, so this is about kingship, but Aziz also has another track which was very inspiring, and um, he, has a he has a lecture once, I don't know, in the 80s, uh, first in Arabic, uh, I think first in English and then in Arabic, and he asks, um, he turns to his imagine the internal audience and ask what happened that um, our our concept meaning the Arabs concept uh, uh, that, that, that we lost the the, the so we, we turn we, we talking to we describe our history in terms of the European uh, historiographies 
So we, we, we use, we, we don't use the Ottoman, so the Ottoman conceptual framework at all. And what happened, when did it happen, why, why did it happen, how did it happen? And I do think that this moment in the 1920s is the moment when this great transformation happens also in ideological terms. A new, new, a new Islam is born as well. <laughs> new secular ideologies are also born. Uh, and terms really change their meanings uh, at this moment. So Aziz's work was very, very inspirational. And he, he read actually some version of the book and he was nicely critical. And <laughs> he gratefully butchered was nice me and then we went along, uh, yeah. But you know, his, his take was, of course, that uh, kingship is inimical to Islamic values. It, it is uh, an illegitimate form of rule. And so I think the interesting thing is you look at sovereign entities coming out of the Ottoman experience and the recycling of empire, as you stress it. It's not just the Ottoman empirical or imperial experience, hmm. but it will be the concept of the Arab imperial experience emerging from the Arab conquests. If one looks for the antecedents of Arab kingship, and you mentioned eight different projects. I mean, the ones that stand out for us are going to be the Saudi project mm. and, and the Hashemite project, you know, mm. which is a claim for Arab kingship. Uh, this is the terms in which he frames it to the British. Correct, correct. And, and so the antecedents for that model, if they think about it, have to be grounded in ambassador Umayyad experience and the kind of older notions of kingship that Aziz was struggling with. So, I mean, I know that there's a time gap between the one and the other, but the idea of kingship is certainly not European monarchical, uh, constitutional monarchy or whatever. Right. It's something coming from Arab experience, that this would be um, a valid and not a, an illegitimate form of government. So, I, you know, is there something in that element of his argument to, to address here? Uh, you know, I'm not really a royalist, so um, uh, I must confess, writing it. Have you written the book? <laughs> yeah, but this is not, it is, it is a book about kings that is not, not a royal. I, I hope it's that. It's clear it's not a royalist book. Um, uh, it's not a normative book. I don't, I, I, it's not a book for, you know, how to govern Arab society. Better monarchy is better or republic. I'm, I'm not interested in that ever. I am very skeptical. Indeed, in the, at the time, this is you. I mean, the Omayyadic uh, par memories are, are used, but I'm very skeptical of you know, a thousand-year experience. Um, you know that um, some people in, in Damascus. I mean, there is a revival in the late 19th century, a romanticization of the Omayyad rule, partly due to Orientalist influence, uh, partly due to their own interest. That's true, but whether um, Viable. I mean, this is really um, there. This becomes a, 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 a there is a monarchical ideology in that sense. Yeah. I don't see that. I didn't see that in in, in the documents I read or in, in the newspaper. So in the sources, I, I didn't see that. Um, it's it's sometimes on the stage, yes, in theater. It's sometimes there are new historical nomads. So the historical imagination does emerge, which is sometimes royalist, sometimes not. Mm -hmm. But whether it, it feeds into the political sphere, I'm not sure. There is a huge debate in Damascus in this period, uh, really about Republican monarchy, and <coughs> very rarely is the argument that, you know, the, the Omayyads were also monarchs, so we should actually make a, a monarchy. The French imperial administrators, they do say sometimes some slightly essentialist uh, oh, argument yeah. that, yes, 
yeah, you, you only only kings can rule here, you know. The Umayyads rule here, so why not make a, a monarchy? They are not. It's it's a misunderstanding that uh, the French French want to create republics in in the region. They actually they don't care. Uh, the only thing they care is that uh, there should be no revolts and there should be stability. The classic political side thing. Um, they proposed after the Khalid, you know, the, after the 1860s, the, 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 there was a concept of a, an Arab kingship of Syria that would be a well, client state well, of France. Abdul himself proposed himself. Yeah, 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 yeah. Proposed himself, yeah, yeah. So, um, it's just, you know, if you were looking for examples or role models for the idea of kingship in 1920, Middle East and North Africa, mm. you know, no one used the title. I mean, in Egypt, it wasn't a monarchy until the British decided first to make it a sultanate, and, and then it was Khedivate. Uh, yeah, but the Khedivate was a monarchy. It was, it was a dynasty, uh, princely state. No, it was. I mean, it's without question. Well, I mean, it is with question, because obviously it's a, it's a <coughs> alter to the sultan. The yeah. Khedive is not a sovereign monarch in the it's same not. way, because it is a sort of viceroy, viceregal role. Yeah, it, in terms of... Uh, yeah, it's a wali al-amr in, in terms of Islamic law, yes. I just was struck by the idea of recycling empire. And, and so the, the, the nomenclature of this is something important. And the, the concept of kingship is, in a funny way, alien to the region in the 1910s and 20s. So there is this English word, kingship. Hmm. But this suggests something to the, uh, the English reader, right? But, I mean, what, what, what we do mean is rather a monarchical imagination, so not, not necessarily the title king. We can also discuss that, but that is just a part of, of what, what we are talking about is, is, um, is, 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 is whether in a political order there is, there is a function for a dynastical imagination or not. And, and I think that, I mean, not only in the Middle East, but in all kinds of Muslim empires or local states, we, we have I mean, an immense amount, an immense variety of these dynastic monarchical imaginations. Mm -hmm. We don't have to go back to the Umayyads mm -hmm. to find a, 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 a ruling Muslim <coughs> dynasty who, who are, are uh, either subordinate or they consider themselves uh, sovereign in terms of <coughs> imperial sovereignty. Uh, so I, I, I think the you know, I, I, I see, yes, yes, there is this historical imagination about, as I said, emerging in the mm. late 19th century, but, uh, but actually there are <laughs> these practices which are there from, I don't know, from Indonesia to, uh, to, uh, to Africa, everywhere, where there are Muslim societies and Muslim princely states and well, governments, and this is, this is what is a main... Uh, is, is a main influence at the time, and indeed, as for instance, the Indian princely states are are very much influential at the time in in the region. Oh, really? Yeah, through through Iraq. Yeah, that's that's very clear. I mean, uh, Rashid Rida before the war already goes to India and circulates, and uh, so the or, already we have this this um, this uh, the, the federation of emirs is is based on this idea that these are all separate princely to princely states. 1920s China, the little kings uh, of China, I don't know. These are bad role models. <laughs> if one's thinking about a sovereign power, these are, these are, these are diminished. But I don't want to be belabored the nomenclature. I, I'm going to, because yeah. these guys are going to want to ask you yeah. questions. Yeah. Give me one more. I'll be quick. You 
are very legally oriented in the, your approach. And, and you're looking at courts and constitutions Some, yeah. as foundational institutions for the project that interests you. And then they exercise the sovereignty uh, without this. They exercise authority, yes. So since you brought up Syria, and since you disagreed with Libby Thompson, I just want to know what you thought happened to the project of the Rashid Bida constitution for the kingdom of Syria. And uh, I haven't seen whether you engaged with it in the book or not. We talked about it at the manuscript phase. And, uh, and I just was wondering where, where you've gone with, because she argues there was one. Mm -hmm. And that this was what was stolen by the French mandate from what would have been a democratic order in Syria. But as you rightly say, there was no Hebba. Sorry, wait, you said Thompson. Is it Elizabeth? Elizabeth Thompson. Yes, um, yeah. how the West stole democracy from the Arabs. Okay, sorry, I, I didn't hear. That was my bad. And always feel free to, I, I talk too much otherwise. Sorry, no, no, so no. I just could you tell sure. us where you stand on, you know, did Rashid Rida draft a constitution that was considered for the kingdom of Syria, the face of the kingdom of Syria? And why do we not find a copy of it? How could they all have been destroyed? So, first of all, there is there are constitutional drafts before that moment, right? For instance, this United States of Syria, it is a constitutional draft written by Syrians much before Rashidida arrives in Damascus from through Cairo and actually Lebanon. He has some family foundation. So first he takes care of his economic business and then goes to Damascus to do some politics. So by the time actually Rashidida arrives, there are already previous constitutional drafts, <coughs> first of all. Those drafts are available. We have them. And the picture you showed us of the yeah, government one of, Sassi, one, one of them. Does that date for that period? It's sort of yeah, it's 1919 summer. Much before yeah. uh, Rida arrives. You got me all excited. I saw the so it's, uh, I mean, but there are other drafts as well. It's, it's not. Uh, I haven't found a draft, and I, I, I looked quite seriously. So my answer is, I don't know. <laughs> my professional answer is, I don't know. I mean, per, very likely there was a draft of, of Russia Rida. Whether it is important, I don't know because I haven't seen it. Yes, we have um, a copy published by someone in the 1930s, right? This is what Thompson based uh, her argument. We don't know where is the original. We don't know if this is accurate, whether it is true or not. Uh, there is no mention before that publication of this, so uh, we don't know. Yeah. And this is my answer. I, I don't know. I, I, I don't. But honestly, it's not for me. It's not really. Uh, I mean, it's a, it's a detail which is not really uh, uh, important in, in my in my uh, argument. It doesn't really matter because, as I said, by the time Rida arrives, and it's it's very late. He, he arrives late 1920s spring, and basically, she has he has three months to to participate in the in the, the constituent assembly. All the things are falling apart. It's 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 um, it's a very late moment actually in in post Ottoman Syrian constitutionalism. So 